So a couple of years ago on Twitter, someone asked the question, uh, what was your college major? And if you could do it uh, uh, differently, what would you have taken instead? Um, I don't know what I would have taken instead, but my major was political science. And political science is neither politics nor science. <laughs> it is a worthless degree. Um, <laughs> unless, in fact, you decide on going to law school, which I ended up doing. Uh, basically, just a whole lot of reading and writing. And like into my sophomore year, I was thinking to myself, why am I a political science major? I don't like any of these things that I'm studying. So I talked to one of my advisors, and he said, well, Jordan, you should audit some classes. Uh, I was considering switching my major to Spanish, and he said, well, you should take one of these upper-level Spanish classes, and just you could either enroll in it or you can audit it. Now, auditing a class basically means you kind of enroll in the class, but there's no grade and there's no credit. So in the simplest of terms, it means you say, I'm going to show up to a class, I'm going to learn, I'm going to get the information, but to keep it all the way live, it doesn't matter if you show up or not. Like, it doesn't really matter if you do any of the assignments, it doesn't matter if you do any of the reading, because you're not being graded on anything. All you're doing is auditing the class. Now, no surprise, um, even though I started that semester in that class with so much enthusiasm, uh, we were reading a novel in Spanish. Like two weeks into class, I was like, I got a lot of stuff going on. And the first thing to get cut was a class that I was auditing. Because there were no consequences. There was no accountability. There was nothing that I could get from that class other than information. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we have been in the book of James for a sermon series. And I feel like James is our spiritual advisor, and James would tell you and me that in the class of faith, you should never audit it. Like, James would say, I don't want you to just get information about Christianity. I want it to be something that holds you accountable to the way that you actually live your life. If you're going to be a Christian, James would push us and really push, push us in a direction that it's not just about getting some good information for us to decide what we want to do with it on our own terms. But James is a book of the Bible calling us to be all in, accountable, and shaping the entirety of our lives around the truths that are presented to us. Now, I know that in a group of this size, and certainly in our church, I speak to so many different people who have really all different walks of life, and some of y'all are like, listen, I'm just here because we're going to brunch afterwards, and like, they, my friends made me stop by here on the way to brunch. And I hope you have reservations because it gets crowded um, after this. <laughs> and to you, you might be thinking to yourself, you know what? I don't know where I, what I believe about Jesus. I'm just, I just want like, to be a positive person. I just want to like, do good things to good people. I don't want to bother anybody. I just want to like, um, you know, I just want to be better, be a better person, be a better version of me. And you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Well, if that's you, I, I, first of all, welcome. It, it makes us so honored that you would stop here on your way to brunch. Um, and No, but in all seriousness, it makes us, it, we're honored that everybody would share your time with us because we know that you could be anywhere or not anywhere today. But here's my hope and my prayer for you. My hope and my prayer for you is that as we read the scriptures today, that God would do something in your life that you didn't even think was possible. 
that as we read the scriptures, that it would just hit you in such a way that it would like unsettle you and resettle you, that it would shake you up, that you would feel the presence of God in a, in a real, tangible way. When I first was becoming a Christian, I'll never forget, I went to a church in Baltimore where I was going to college, and I sat in the back because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be locked in just in case it got weird. I was like, all right, I'm a, I need a quick exit just in case um, it gets weird in here. And um, as I sat in the back of service, to be perfectly honest, I don't even remember what the sermon was about, but I just remember feeling something. Now, I didn't have the word for it then, but now I would come to learn that that word is a word conviction, that I was starting to feel God shine a flashlight in my life, that God was shining a flashlight into my life to what I needed to know, and I needed to know that he was real and he was close to me. So that's our hope and our prayer for you today, for those of you who might not consider yourself a Christian, that as we read this scripture, that it would be something that shines a light into your life and reveals to you uh, a real God who wants a real relationship with you. But for the rest of us in here who have claimed, uh, who have already said you are a Christian, uh, I want us to uh, know that we are enrolling this class of faith. Um, We're not auditing it. We're not just coming here for good information. And this scripture right here in James 4 that we're in, fair warning, it kind of packs a punch. So here's what James says in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 4. He says this, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you. You desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, but you don't receive because you're asking with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, James says a lot in these 13 verses, and it's profound. Thousands of years before modern psychology introduced these concepts to us, James James is basically telling us that the real source, the real source of conflict The real source of tension between you and God, the real source of tension between you and other people, the root of it is inside of you. The real source of issues, James would say, none of these things are external, they are internal. Now, I've done this uh, illustration a number of times, so much so that it's it's lost its surprise element. Um, But most of the time, when we think about conflicts, 
We think that if I were to take this water bottle right here and take it and open it and start to shake it, of course water would come out. And the question I would always ask is, well, why did water come out the bottle? And people would say, because you shook it. But if we take the same, uh, use the same force on something where there's nothing inside, nothing would come out of the water bottle because nothing is inside of it. James is saying the source of conflict is inside of you. From time to time, there, is, uh, there are people who brush against you. There are people who trigger you. But guess what? There is something on the inside of you that is unsettled. There are, there are passions that James says that are warring on the inside of you that are causing unconflict between you and other people and causing the conflict between you and God. Now, we would do very well to realize the depth to which uh, our internal worlds really, really matter for your spiritual formation. Now, over the past number of years, um, I feel like heading into year eight or year nine, we're about to turn eight years old in September, which is crazy. Yes, praise God. Um, one of the things I've thought about over the years is how much I've learned more and more what it means to be a pastor. Like when we first started a church, quite honestly, I was like really happy when people would come to church, sit down, and listen to sermons because I thought that the way people would change, the way people would grow, is coming and hearing more information. Now, to a certain extent, that is true. We do need God's word to guide us, to correct us, to encourage us, to convict us. We need God's word to permeate every facet of our soul because we cannot thrive on our own opinions. We need God's word in our lives. However, there is a huge part of your life that is all internal and memorizing 13 scriptures is not going to do nothing about it. There are pieces of, there are, as James would say, passions that wage war within you that a couple of selected scriptures from Colossians ain't going to do nothing about it. As one of my mentors, and uh, uh, Pete Scazzaro, he says it like this, but an authentic relationship with Christ, an authentic relationship with Christ, also, in addition to scripture and prayer, it also takes us into the depths, the shadows, the strongholds, and the darkness deep within our own souls that must be purged. Surrendering to this inward and downward journey is difficult and painful. So James basically is getting at this right here. James is talking about this inward journey, this downward journey, examining, looking at, taking our passions that are ungodly to the altar of God's grace and allowing God to do something with them. But first and foremost, it, it is trying to bring it to our conscious attention. You and I will never be able to grow in an area that we are ignorant of. You know, as I think about all of the conversations I've had over the last number of years with people in the church, and when I think about all the growth that I've had, much of it, had, much of it has come with a timely word where I heard a scripture presented by someone in a, in a way that just hit me, and it was exactly what I needed. There's other pieces of my growth that have happened. It's all come when I've had to examine what was going on inside of me. When I've had to examine my motives. What is James talking about in James 4? He's talking about your desires. He's talking about your motivations. 
Here's one thing I've come to learn. What you do matters for sure. Why you do it matters even more. What you do matters, but why you do it matters even more. There are a lot of people who are very active in church, very active for God, and their souls are empty. They're so insecure. There is no well that they draw from about the love of God in their lives. They're constantly working. They're constantly judging other people because there's this void, this vacuum inside of them that they're trying to fill it with a whole bunch of activity. I know a lot of pastors like that. I've been like that. So James is really giving us a very sober judgment about the reality of our spiritual lives. So James is... um, He presents some pretty uh, harsh language. He talks about the language of this warring, these passions warring within us. One of the things that's uh, probably the closest example we have to war in modern times is the war between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, certainly in the beginning of the, the war, when it first broke out, I was glued to the TV, glued to my Twitter feed, and I was watching almost every single update that President Zelensky would issue. And one of the things that was fascinating was that he switched from being this jovial former comedian to being a wartime president. No longer was he making jokes. He was wearing his like, wartime uniform, his, his uh, army green uh, T-shirt, and all of his addresses were sober because he knew that they were in a war. He was behaving and talking like someone who was at war. What James is basically telling us is this. The things going on inside of you They're warring against your soul. And now is not the time for jokes. It's not no longer sufficient to just come to church, listen to some songs, listen to a message, and then go home about your merry way, but to behave as if there's a war going on inside. No man is safe. Here's the the thing that uh, James is getting at. In our lives, in our spiritual life, um, there are aspects of your life that are not just determined by what's going on around you, but what is going on on the inside. So a couple of quick things. As we're talking about desires and motivations, I first want to give a quick caveat because I feel like so often people make it to be a pretty one-note or simple thing, and it's not meant to be simple. So a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to, um, we went to Zion National Park in, um, in Utah. We were the only two black people in the entire state. <laughs> It was never hard to find her when like, we separated. Like, there she is, the black person. <laughs> and um, I had some business meetings in Salt Lake City, and my wife loves to travel. So whenever I have business meetings outside of New York, she'll see what's going on in the area and decide whether or not she wants to tag along and make a trip out of it. So uh, we made a trip out of this, and we went to um, Zion National Park. And whenever I uh, am about to go on vacation, I don't look at the itinerary. All I need to know is like, well, what kind of clothes should I pack so I don't make my wife upset um, when we get out there? So we have this whole itinerary in Zion National Park, yo, top five most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. And we did this one hike called Angel's Landing. And Angel's Landing is absolutely gorgeous, and I do not recommend any human being doing it because it's also, like, it's also very, very dangerous, to be quite honest. As soon as we got back, we found out that, you know, somebody, a friend of a friend actually had died on, on, on this Angel's Landing. And it's called Angel's Landing as a nickname because people joked 
that only angels could land on it. There was a couple of points in the hike where on both sides of you, there was a thousand foot drop. Yes. I kept on thinking, like, this ain't the way I'm going to die. This can't be, this can't be the way I go out. Um, and in some ways, um, but the view at the top was amazing. I'm not going to lie about that. Got a lot of likes on that Instagram post. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is, in so many different ways, like, as you walk through Angel's Landing, you knew that on both sides of you, there were cliffs. And as we're talking about this concept of desire that James is presenting to us, very clearly there's one side of the cliff that, come, that emerges from the text, which is that if you have selfish ambition and ungodly desires, it's going to lead you to a wrong path. But the other side that I think is really underdeveloped and really has been talked about poorly in the church over time is I feel like so many people, another error, the other cliff that I would hate that has done so much damage to people's spiritual life is people make all desire out to be bad. That we're just overly simplistic in our approach to the concept of desire. So anything that we feel inside of us, we push it down, we stuff it down, and we make all desire out to be bad. And all desire is absolutely not bad. God gives us desires. God plants desires in your heart. For some of you right now, you have a vision, you have a dream. It is God himself that has planted that desire in your heart, and it will be criminal for you to waste that. Other times, another big misunderstanding on the concept of desire is that oftentimes, even our ungodly desires, they will show us, they are useful. I'll say it like that. Our, even our ungodly desires are useful, not because they should be followed, because they should not be followed, but rather they oftentimes are the roadmap to healing. That if you want to figure out how you can heal, you have to first pay attention to all of your desires, not just the good and the godly ones. As I think about all of the different scenarios I've been as a pastor and talking to people personally and also professionally, so many people take their desires, they stuff them in a bag and they zip them up and they try to ship them away as far as possible. But you need to pay attention to your desires, even the ungodly ones, because if you do that hard inward look, work of, of taking a look at them, they might show you the pathway towards healing and towards Christ and redemption. So the two errors that we want to avoid, we want to avoid stuffing all our desires down. And what James is talking about here is just allowing your desires to drive you without limit. That people would be people who just have, we're on autopilot. We just let our desires push us and we follow them wherever they, they go. Uh, there's one scripture in the Bible where Paul talks about this um, group of people. He says, their God was their bellies. And that was such a peculiar way of phrasing um, how malformed they were. Well, basically, he is talking about our animals. And animals whose gods are their bellies, whenever they're hungry, they'll eat, period. We went to Florida a couple of weeks ago, and we did a, um, a boat ride, one of those like fan airboats, whatever, in the Everglades National Park. And there were all of these huge um, alligators out there. And they talked about alligators and how like a mother alligator will give her young like two or three years to get out on their own. And if they're still there when they're like three years old, the mother would just eat them if, they, if she's hungry. Talk about bad parenting, right? You think you're a bad mother because your kids don't speak five languages. Um, so mother alligators, and why, would it, why do they do that? Because their gods are their bellies. 
when they're hungry, they eat. There's no limitation. There's nothing that separates their desire from their actions. So what James is really getting at here is this, that there should always be a separation, a submission of your life in between your desire and your action that allows us to follow God and not blindly obey our desires. That it would never be said of of us that our gods are our bellies, that we just do whatever we feel like doing. And James is saying the fundamental problem in this one Christian community was that they had all of these desires that they were blindly following. There's a couple of desires I want to highlight right now. The first is the desire to have. The desire to have. He says uh, in verse 1, 2, 3, he says, What is the source of wars and fighting among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You, have, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So James is saying you don't have, and basically this desire to have oftentimes is fueled by something I like to call the comparison trap. Oftentimes, we're content with the life that God has given us until we look at someone else's life. And here's how this wages war against your soul. Not merely because you have a desire to have something. Hear me as loud and clearly as I want to be heard. God himself, Yahweh, has put desires in your, ha- in your heart to have certain things. Desire in and of itself is not bad. But here's where it turns into a war against your own soul. When not having something creates and forms and fashions a new theology of how you understand God. Because someone else has something that I have and I want and I don't have, I now believe that God has gotten it wrong, that God is cruel, that God is distant, that God doesn't hear me when I pray. And here's what James is getting at when he talks about this desire to have, that we covet. It's that, it's not that the thing that we want is wrong in and of itself, but we now start to develop an alternate theology of what God is like because somebody else has something that we want, and for whatever reason, God in his infinite wisdom has not given it to us or not given it to us yet. That's, a, that's, a, a, that's going to wage war against your soul. And James says to pay very specific attention to that because left unchecked, it's going to disrupt relationships with other people and with God. The second one is this desire to feel. So he basically says, you only want what's going to give you pleasure. And verse 3 says, you ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now, again, I really want to give it, I want to be very careful on this one. Like, God has created us to be people of delight. Have you ever thought about that? That sometimes I believe fully and firmly that God is most pleased with me when I am delighting in the things that he has given me to have. My youngest son is four years old now, and his um, vocabulary is exploding, and this little boy loves to eat. Every single time, mealtime, he'll go, yummy, yummy in my tummy. <laughs> he has a big stomach, too, so it's like... And he gets very animated. And quite honestly, it's my favorite thing. And if you ever see it, it'll be your favorite thing to, to watch. Like, I delight in watching him delight. And I think the heart of the Father is that God delights in watching you delight in the things that he has given you to delight in. It wages war against your soul when you want to delight without limitations. If you want to delight in whatever you want to delight in, 
without regard for what God has given you or the limits that God has given you. One of the things we're going to talk about one of these days is a theology of limitations and how God, back to Genesis 3, in the garden, God says, Adam and Eve, yo, y'all can shake out. Y'all can eat whatever tree you want. Just don't eat this one right here. What is that? That's a theology of delight and limitations, that God wants them to enjoy all of the things that he has given them, but just don't touch this one right here. What James is talking about here in James 4 is that people wanted a version of pleasure that had no limitations. There was no separation between their desires and their actions. They were going after things in sole search of their pleasure and not necessarily what God had to say about it. And the last one was a desire, a desire to be, a desire to be. And I I think, quite honestly, this is probably my biggest danger. Uh, My biggest temptation is that I would ignore God's limits over my life in a pursuit to be something out of an insecurity that I'm not already something enough. I'll save that for my therapist. (laughs) I talked to this one guy, he wanted to be a church planter, and he came to Renaissance and he said, yeah, man, you know, I want to plant a church. He stopped me in the hallway. I said, great. Uh, Did you fill out a connection card? And he was like, oh, no, not yet. I said, well, fill out a connection card. And he came back the next week and said, hey, I filled out the connection card. Um, I said, well, he said, yeah, I, I want to talk to you about being a church planter. I said, great. You should volunteer and serve as a, on, a, on our, one of our crews. And he's like, okay, great. He goes back and he writes in the category for like preaching or something on the connection card. I was like, brother, that is not, that was not the option on the connection card. There's transformation, there's kids, there's, there's a lot of different areas, but preaching is not one of those things. He wanted to to be something immediately without being a servant, without following a process. What kind of church would that be for someone who wants to just ignore and skip what it means to be a servant just in in search of a microphone? I think if we're not honest, I think if if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times we run into problems because we have a desire to be something that God might not have for us to be. We We want to have a big name. We want to have the Instagram following. We want the blue check. We want everybody to speak well of us. But Jesus says, woe unto you if everybody speaks well of you. Woe unto you if everybody speaks well well of you. As I read through the Gospels, I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, and one of the things that's most profound is that Jesus literally ran away from, as hard as possible, all human praise. People were trying to big up Jesus and give him all of his props. Jesus would just leave. There's one scenario in Mark 4 where Jesus is like, he's uh, reclined, and his disciples come up to him and say, Jesus, yo, there's all these people here. They're waiting for you. They heard about you. And Jesus says, all right, let's leave. Let's go to another village. And I'm like, bro, I would not have done it like that. I'd have like, there's a crowd waiting for me. I would have brushed my teeth and gone right out there. The longest decision would have been what sneakers I was going to wear to get out there. And that's because I have a desire to be something. God wants you to be something. God wants you to be something to him. Here's why. Your life, my life, was made to glorify God. My life, your life, was made to magnify God. Now, there's two types of magnification. There's a type of magnification that a microscope does. A microscope takes something really small, and it magnifies it, and it makes it something that is visible. The other type of magnification is that of a telescope. A telescope magnifies something that is really far away and not easily visible, but it makes it to be as big or closely as big as it is in real 
life. Our lives are meant to be telescopes, that we are magnifying God, not a God who is small, but a God who is infinitely large and wise and powerful and good. Our, and our lives are meant to display his glory. Here's a question for your life. A lot of times people uh, run into questions and they say, well, I don't know what I should be doing. Here's a question. Can I glorify God doing this? If the answer is yes, do it. If the answer is yes and you want to do it, do it. If we're not careful, we'll, do, we'll be what James says in verses 4 through 6. Um, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And friendship with the world does not mean being nice to people. It doesn't mean being kind, gracious. These are the fruit of the Spirit that God gives to his people. Amen? It means living your life in such a way that your aim is worldly approval, is worldly success, and not godly approval and godly success, which oftentimes look different, looks very different. So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? We would purchase with the price and God wants us to live our lives for him. That means submitting our desires to him. So James summarizes our resistance to uh, this in so many different ways. And basically James summarizes it all and says, you know what, this is all basically what it boils down to. It's pride. It's pride. Verse 6 he says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. God resists the prideful, self-sufficient people. God resists the people in pursuit of having things without limits. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the remedy James gives is in verses 7 through 10. He says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do you submit to God? How, how do you do that practically? Well, one of the ways is something that Jesus taught his disciples to do actually comes in prayer. So Jesus' disciples come to him one day and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. So Jesus teaches them to pray and he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And he says this line, your will be done. For you to submit your life to God means praying daily. God, I have a will. I have plans. I have desires. And I'm going to lay them down for your will and your plans and your desires to be met in my life. One of the things I've done, that's probably the most helpful thing I've done, is to write down a list. When I get to that, your will be done. I write down a list. Here are the, here's my will. Here's my will that I want to happen. Here's all the things that I want to see happen, but not my will, Lord. Your will be done. That's what it means to submit your life to God. And Scripture tells us that if you humble yourself, in due time, God will exalt you. God might not give you the desires that you wrote down on that paper, but God will give you something better than that. Not necessarily in material or in fame or anything like that but it would be the life that God wants you to have. When you get to the end of your days, which life do you want? The life that you predetermined or the life that God wanted you to have? The path to get to the life that God wants you to have won't be nearly as uh, comfortable, as easy, 
but it will be better. So James continues, he says, resist the devil. Resist the devil that's, that's tempting you. You can have whatever you want to have without limits, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, one of the ways we come to God is in something called communion. Uh, communion is a practice that's been going on since the early church has started, since Jesus was with his earliest disciples. And communion is a meal that's intended to rekindle our understanding and our affirmation and our adoration of God and the gospel. Here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe, yet at the same time, more loved than we can ever imagine. And we see that on the cross. We see that on the cross that Jesus, God himself, had to come down in the form of Jesus and go to the cross because nothing you and I would ever do on our own would ever be sufficient. And he didn't do it begrudgingly. As I heard one preacher say, it wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. It was his love for you and for me that held him there. Uh, so Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I want to live the life that you want me to live. Lord, I don't want to just do the things and live in, in pursuit of what I want. I don't want to be prideful and think that my way is the best way. Lord, help me to be humble. Help me, Lord, because I'll never be humble on my own. Help me to be dependent and, and trusting of you. And Jesus, let me pray. Amen.